This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together. Standing by are Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Dave. I, and everyone. I know we have Joita just a little bit slow <laughs> on somewhere. the fader there. A little slow on the fader there. That's not Joita's fault. That's on our end. Let's uh, oh, jump. Okay. Let's, yeah, you're okay, Joita. You're okay. <laughs> let's let's uh, jump right in to the first topic du jour. The deadline for Canadian businesses to repay government pandemic loans was yesterday. Lisa Laporte explains. Hundreds of thousands of businesses and nonprofits received a Canada Emergency Business Account loan of up to $60,000 during the COVID-19 pandemic. Up to one-third of the loans could be forgiven if the outstanding amount was repaid by today. Otherwise, the debt will convert into a three-year loan with 5% annual interest. Businesses have the option to refinance the loan with a financial institution, but the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and Restaurants Canada have been calling for another extension to the deadline. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it's time to wrap up pandemic financial aid programs. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Michelle, you flagged the topic. Why did you want to bring it to the table? I did. I, I feel this one's important on a number of levels. Uh, small businesses, of course, is something we all feel very passionate about. But the, the whole issue of pandemic programs and managing those and when to pull the plug is, I think, a really interesting one. And you're seeing this debate playing out here. It's one that I think really hits people where they live in a lot of places because you, you've got people taking the government to task for, for overspending, for for financial bloat, for financial mismanagement even. And now they're trying to to rein in a program that a lot of people are saying is still deeply necessary for reasons that might have been at least somewhat foreseeable. So it's actually quite of an interesting debate. It tends to get pretty uh, polarizing if the uh, discussions of the CP newsroom are any kind of indication. Um, <laughs> so uh, what better forum for a lively topic of conversation than the, than the news panel? Yeah, Joita, it's been about two years. In a couple of weeks, it'll have been about two years since significant COVID restrictions were lifted, the end of the Omicron wave in uh, February of 2022. So what do you think about the government standing firm on this 2024 date in January? Well, on the face of it, it is a grant. Uh, that means uh, it, it wasn't a grant, which means it, it it did have to be paid back at some point. A grant, of course, you get to keep forever. Um, and seeing as it's not a grant uh, and there is an option to convert it into a loan, uh, you know, via financial institution, some could argue that that's you know, that's fair. You you pay back the loan gradually over the course of a couple of years. A 5% interest rate is pretty much at par with the kind of interest rates that most homeowners are taking out on their mortgages right now. So yeah, it's actually a little bit lower. Yeah. It's actually a little bit lower. It's actually yeah. a little yeah. bit it lower. Is. So, is. Yeah. so there's that, that, that perspective <clears throat> that, you know, it's, it was never meant as a grant and, you know, to put a nail in the coffin, I suppose one could also argue that if the CRA has gone after individuals to pay back their CERB, then why should businesses of any stripe get a, uh, get a, yeah, 
get a, get a free pass. Joita, that's Joita, that that's the nail on the head. No, no, I'll, I'll let you finish, but that's the nail on the head right there. That the government was coming after CERB repayments, like like mm -hmm. like months. Like yes. I want to say in like 2022, they were already coming after individuals for CERB repayments yes. who misappropriated CERB. So I think that's a really important piece of context here. Businesses were essentially given two more years than individuals to get their stuff together. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But of course, it is a little more complicated. The reality on the ground, especially for restaurants, is quite a bit more complicated, as I think we can all adjust. Uh, I interrupted you. You can finish, You can you can get to what you wanted to say. Well, that's what I was saying, that I think the reality oh, is on the it. ground. Okay. Yes, I did say it. <laughs> All right, fantastic. All right, great. We stopped Joita in the middle of her windup. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, Michelle, I think I think timeline-wise here, Joita sort of hit that spot on the head. A couple years to sort of get this paid back interest-free. Now, two years later, at a lower than prime interest rate, you get an opportunity to convert this into a loan. 5% on $60,000 is about $3,000 a year in interest payments, not an ungoshly sum, not an unhandleable sum. And if $3,000 a year is the difference between a business making it and not making it, sorry, guys, like, your business sucks. <laughs> No, I, Michelle, I mean that. I, I mean that seriously. No, no, like, I, I, if three thousand dollars can bankrupt a small business, like, come on, like, let's be real here. No, it's it, it's it's a very fair point, and, and I will add to all of this. I I agree with all, all the timing arguments that you've all raised, and what is more, this deadline was for partial loan forgiveness. It wasn't to get it all paid back, like we said. So this is it, it was to qualify for an additional measure of relief. If you get some of some of your loan paid back by by yesterday. You could have part of it forgiven as well. So there's there, there were it was a very sort of generous and flexible program, and yeah, I think that the, the question I keep coming back to is yeah, these programs cannot go on indefinitely. We know that the government spent billions of dollars on these, have taken a lot of heat as a result. Uh, of course, you can't please everyone in a situation like this, but after two extensions and plenty of notice. Um, I have heard more unreasonable arguments than they've had plenty of time and we need to wrap this up now, and especially given the terms that are currently in place. Yeah, no, no, that said, I know I just took a shot at a lot of small business owners and now they're very mad at me and the hate mail's coming <laughs> in. Uh, Joey, to you and Michelle and I, as we've been having these conversations about the broader economy, have acknowledged multiple times the difference between the macroeconomics and the microeconomics. So don't, so I want to sort of retract my heartless statement a smidge and say, Juita, that I do understand that small businesses are a big employer in this country and there are economic implications if they all go under, especially in what continues to be an uneasy microeconomic moment in the economy. So I'm not uncaring. I do acknowledge that the idea of businesses going under as we're in the middle of something resembling a recession, I, I, I do get it. I do have concerns about a lot of businesses going belly up, even if yeah, they're bad yeah. businesses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the chief concern that I would have in relation to what we're talking about right now is if a whole bunch of small businesses go under, well, forget it, they're not going to pay the loans back at all. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that employment is going, going unemployment is going to go up uh, because, you know, these small businesses do employ a large number of people who will suddenly find themselves jobless and there are knock-on effects from that. And in fairness to the restaurant industry, it has seen a very slow recovery even before the pandemic. The the profit margins on a restaurant are very small. I mean, there's a the few yes. and, uh, restaurants that are far, few and far between that see these, you know, massive profits. But for the most part, even before the pandemic, restaurant owners were struggling. 
And we've talked about the rising cost of food, which I think affects their bottom line. The fact that cost of living <clears> has <throat> gone up across the board. So all of us are spending more on housing, are spending more on our groceries, we're spending more on gasoline, you name it, heating, which means we have less discretionary spending, ergo less money to spend on things like going out to eat at a restaurant. So I do think that restaurants are in something of a unique situation. And rather than, you know, say, end it or not, or don't end it, maybe the more relevant question in some respects would be, was there a better approach to take? And rather than, you know, going uh, by, a, rather than taking a hard and fast deadline, maybe it would have been worthwhile to think about indexing uh, the ability of a small business to pay back these loans to their profits. So by all means, if you are you know, successful, you're making a lot of money, your profits are coming in, then you should be required to pay back the loans. But if not, if you're not being able to demonstrate that you're making profits and you have not seen the kind of recovery that maybe other sectors have in the economy, then maybe we need to be looking at a, a gentler approach to recoup the money from a small business that has that has not recovered to the same extent or has not done as well. I mean, on paper, that sort of a case-by-case -case approach sounds very promising to me, but that is only on paper because I can readily acknowledge mm -hmm. that if the government were to take something like this on, it would create a bureaucracy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, Nightmare. it's it's also it's and also it's, Michelle, Michelle, hold on, hold on, hold on, other... Michelle, hold on. It's also a little bit revisionist because the point when these programs exactly. were being un unveiled in the first place was get help out fast, out right? the door right now. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. That was exactly what I was going to say. Yep. Oh, okay, sorry, Michelle. I, the, I... the target was that's all good. Nope. We we're, we're excited over the same thought. But yeah, that, that was the whole that was the whole point was that companies were saying we're going to have to stop paying people tomorrow if we don't get money today. And that was the, the, the impetus for the program. Now, I do agree, though, that there could be good lessons learned on this. We found ourselves in an unprecedented situation in 2020 when these programs had to be developed on the fly. Uh, and now we have templates to follow. And hopefully, if we do find ourselves in such a situation again, maybe it would be a little smoother. But we didn't really have a playbook to work from before. Yeah, there, there, there are still active case studies going on, right? The, the, the research is only really happening now to truly understand what the broader impact economically of the pandemic was. So, so, the, so, so all these things present little case studies, but decisions had to be made in a, in a, in a low information situation for a couple of years there. So yeah, I, I extend empathy, but I also, but I also do acknowledge like it is, it is cold. Like it is cold to say, Hey, <laughs> if your business can't handle this, like you're, you're out the door. Uh, Michelle, Joita mentioned the restaurant sector. And I will, by extension, apply like the bar and tavern and club sector to this. Yeah. What are some other sectors that maybe could be extended a little more empathy? I think about like the gym and fitness industry, which was drastically impacted mm -hmm. for the better part of for two sure. and a half years. And then a lot of people yep. bought home workout gear, so they might never have gone back at all. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent one. And, and a lot of retail environments. There's a ton of we know about the supports that big box stores and other retailers got, they were allowed to stay open and declared essential services. But all of those that were not, which was many, um, are still feeling some pinches. And this is where I also think that the government has been relatively reasonable in that the, the, the factors that a lot of these businesses are citing for holding them back in their recovery are things like supply chain issues, stuff that was a, a bit, at least somewhat foreseeable during the pandemic. We knew supply chains are being compromised um, inflation often follows in those cases with restaurants. Food prices, of course, are a different ballgame. But I think the government did account for at least some of these semi-foreseeable factors, perhaps not in scale, but withdrew those extensions. And I, I would like to think they would have made a bit of a difference to some of those other businesses. But I think 
I, it's, it's clear though, just from the scope and, and the number of arguments coming out from all across other sectors. So I, you, you mentioned retail, or I mentioned retail gyms, gyms is a good one. Anything really in the hospitality sector, I think could, mm-hmm. it could yeah. stand to, to amusement parks, like at any theaters, uh, arts, arts mm-hmm. organizations, yeah. Yeah. Uh, t- tons of ones that when you're hearing this this much consistency in the arguments it's the old where there's smoke there's fire argument there clearly is uh more going on here than than we're, than we're able to tackle yeah juita in a lot of cases for these sectors outside of even restaurants and bars it's it's turnstile sectors right it's it's sectors that depend mm-hmm. on people being in a place and spending money to be there and having money to spend right i mean that's mm. the other piece yeah. anything that relies on discretionary uh, income has been has taken a hit. Uh, grocery store, grocery chains are still doing well, even though grocery prices have gone up because we can't wriggle out of buying food, and it just it's it's a non-starter. So I think we have to have a little more of a we do have to have a little more empathy for this whole situation. I think the economic consequences of the pandemic are still being felt and will likely continue to be felt for years to come. So. Um, it's a tricky one because, as I said a few, as I said a few minutes ago, I I do wonder if maybe rather than looking at sectors, we might be better off looking at individual cases. But as I've readily acknowledged, it's a it's a bit of a nightmare and much better on paper than in practice. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think any kind of any sector, any business that relies on discretionary income, uh, the hospitality sector uh, of, in, uh, you know, amusement parks, any form of entertainment, uh, I, I think those would be the places where I would I would continue to see uh, the lingering impacts of the pandemic. Because, you know, when it comes to the necessities, whether it's been housing or food, we've no matter how much they cost, we've always had to pony up and pay, which has, of course, meant that we have less money. Yeah, the the only thing I'll say here too is that when you actually go to the when you actually go to these places now, they're still they're still jam packed, right? Like sports arenas across the country are having no problem moving tickets. Uh, movie theaters are still doing good numbers when a good when a good movie is coming out. Like like a lot of a lot of the case of the inequality that we're talking about is really and truly there are places that are continuing to thrive through the prices. So again, that's where Juita is really right to identify there are these individualistic cases that sometimes end up being the stuff that gets splashed into a news story rather than perhaps the more gen the more generalized picture is there are a lot of places still having success michelle like like like, like that's the thing that makes the economic picture so confusing right now is that there actually is quite a bit of economic success going on in the country right now it's just that the losers are getting beaten up in a terrible way well, I think there's that, but I think there's also just a lack of data for us to truly understand the full picture. I think we we risk running, the, making the mistake that sometimes happens in in our journal, in our in our jobs, when we start deriving story pitches just from anecdotes. Sometimes there's something there. Sometimes there is a broader trend, but sometimes there isn't, and it's hard to extrapolate just from our own individual experiences of going into certain businesses without the data that, as you pointed out earlier, is still emerging. We're still navigating our way through all this and truly coming to grips with what the fallout has been. So I I do think it's a bit tricky to, to draw broad conclusions just based on all those factors. All right, then let's put this topic to bed. If we can't draw any conclusions, then let's stop talking about it. All right, coming up after the break, some tenants facing eviction in Ontario are demanding money from landlords to avoid delays at the rental landlord tribunals. So where do you land on the issue? Should landlords be paying out tenants to hand over the keys? 
Or is there a better solution? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.